you ready for this? I'm not sure if I'm ready for this. I was thinking about maybe teaching on a different subject. So I hope you don't mind. I'm going to change the sermon and not talk about it. Okay, so since I feel awkward about this, I want to I want to sort of lead in with something not awkward. What'd you have for breakfast this morning? How many of you sometime this week had a bowl of cereal? Show of hands. Eight cereals sometime this week. Okay, anybody anybody eat cornflakes? Raise your hand if you had cornflakes. A couple of you had cornflakes. Well, here's what you don't know about cornflakes. Uh, cornflakes were invented to remove all of your sexual impulses. Did you know that? No. <laughs> You're thinking, I'm having Wheaties. I don't need cornflakes. <laughs> uh, this is true. I'm not making this up. Uh, in Battle Creek, Michigan, around the end of the 19th century, there was this doctor who was convinced that really the biggest problems in the world were not war and disease and problems like that, but the real things that were threatening mankind the most had to do with our uh, overinflated sex drive. And so he decided that he was going to come up with a way to combat this, and somehow he was convinced that the answer was in corn. And his name was Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. And so he took corn and wheat and mixed them together and baked them and created some flakes that he marketed like a snake oil salesman to solve all of your problems. Primarily, your problems are caused, according to him, by uh, your sex drive. And if we could use these flakes, we could get rid of your sex drives. And so they were prescribed to curb the human sex drive. He believed that uh, sexual activity, even in marriage, caused all kinds of terrible problems like cancer, urinary tract infections, epilepsy, and insanity. Now, I know some of you are sitting here going, you know what? I feel like my marriage has driven me insane. So it, that could be, that he may have been onto something here. But he, he specifically was concerned about masturbation. There it is. I said that word right here in church. So settle in, okay? He was particularly concerned about masturbation. He was convinced that masturbation is the number one cause of acne, now, just think about it for a second and pick up the irony in this. How'd you like to be a pimply-faced boy and your pimples are breaking out and your mother is being told that it's caused by masturbation? So that's what they were dealing with. It caused acne. It caused heart disease. He said it caused atrophy of the testicles. And I don't know what that is, but I have stopped eating cornflakes since I read that. It causes insomnia and vision impairment. That's what he said. There was another guy, contemporary of his, whose name is Charles William Post. <laughs> Post picked up on what Kellogg was talking about, realized there was a market there, and created his own cereal and came up with a number of health benefits that he said his cereal offered, and that started a race among cereal makers, so that by the end of the 19th century, there were 42 different kind of cornflakes on the market. And Kellogg won the race. And that's why if you ate cornflakes this week, you probably ate Kellogg's cornflakes with a rooster on the box. That's why Cal Poly Pomona exists, because of all the money the Kellogg family made 
on the cornflakes that they sell and the different versions of cornflakes. Um, now, obviously, in order to become that popular and win the race, he had to change his marketing strategy. That people were not buying that I want to actually curb my sex drive. So people were not into that, but somehow they changed the marketing strategy. But in the beginning, they got it wrong. And I tell you this because I want you to realize that when it comes to sex and sexuality, we've been getting it wrong for a very, 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 very long time. And um, one thing is for sure. Sex is on people's minds. That hasn't changed. Um, and it seems to be becoming more and more of a public issue in our day today. Let me give you a couple of examples. Just 2012, about seven, eight years ago, or six or seven years ago, five or six years, in 2012, <laughs> in 2012, there's a book that came out. You probably never heard of it. It's called Fifty Shades of Grey. I'm sure you never heard of it, and I'm confident none of you read it, but there was this book called Fifty Shades of Grey. It came out first as internet, um, an, uh, an internet book, and some publisher picked it up. They published it, and this book, if you don't know, if you haven't heard about Fifty Shades of Grey, Fifty Shades of Grey is a book or a three-part book series that deals very, very, very explicitly with all kinds of uh, fringe sexual activities like bondage, submission, masochism, and things of that nature. Um, and the interesting thing about this graphic sex book is that they marketed this book to, of all people, women. Now, who in the world in history has ever thought, hey, if I'm going to sell sex, I should sell it to women? It's a ridiculous idea, right? There's no way that could work, right? Well, guess what? Fifty Shades of Grey is now the number five best-selling book, not of 2012, not of this decade, of all time. It is on the list with titles such as Don Quixote, A Tale of Two Cities, and Lord of the Rings. And right sandwiched in there is Fifty Shades of Grey. 150 million copies and three movies. Um, the three-part movie series has been in theaters. The third one is there now. I don't recommend that you go see it. Um, but that's just one example of how we get it wrong when it comes to sex and how much it's on our minds. Another example is this. Maybe you can guess. What is the most popular elective course in American college campuses today? Human sexuality. Human sexuality. Now, now, college students, 18 to 22 roughly, are, are lining up to take human sexuality courses in their colleges. And whatever else we might say about those human sexuality courses that have long waiting lists and students fighting to get into them is that they are not, in general, teaching sexuality from a biblical perspective. Would you agree with that? Uh, Another example, this is probably something you haven't heard of. Did you realize there's something called online pornography? Did anybody know that? Online pornography. Look at you all acting like, really? I had no idea. <laughs> I'm looking at you and you're like, yeah, I'm not going to look at it. There's something called online pornography. 
It is free, generally. It is easily accessible, and it can be kept private. You no longer have to go to some seedy theater in the wrong part of town in order to see graphic videos of sexual activity. Pornography has always been a problem for men, always. I, I'm, I'm sure that if you go back all the way, as far as you can go back, it, it, in cave drawings, there are drawings of scantily clad women, and there were guys lining up outside the cave paying, you know, a rock or two rocks to see that, Right? That's not surprising. It's always been a temptation for men. But as pornography moves into the mainstream of American culture, the thing that is disheartening and shocking, perhaps, is that regular porn use is becoming commonplace among, guess who? Women. Women. Now, last year, on the world's largest porn site... There's a search engine where you can search for the type of porn you want to see. And the number one search topic typed in in 2017 on the world's largest porn site was this, porn for women. It's a whole category, apparently. Now, I'm not saying all this to shock you. I'm not saying all this to disgust you. And I'm not saying all this so that we can create camps of people that we're against and go after them. I think most of us know our culture is overly sexualized. I think most of us would agree that there's too much perversion, however we might define perversion in our culture. But I'm simply making the point that when it comes to sex, we've been getting it wrong for a long, long time, and we're still getting it wrong today. And why is that? (laughs) Could be the cornflake problem. I think the reason, or at least one of the big reasons that we're getting it wrong in our culture is that those who have the right view of sex are not talking. That that if anybody's got, you know, a sexual morality and ethics figured out, those people tend to be the ones who are very tight-lipped and they're not talking about it. For instance, we know already that parents are doing a notoriously bad job of educating their kids about sexuality. That's not anything new. Um, But don't worry, the schools are covering it. And, And I say this with total respect to teachers who are dealing with this, who are in a really tough position in how to present this. But let's just agree that the average school child is not getting a biblical sex education from his public school system. The one place that seems to hold the truth and have a platform to share the truth is the church. And the church won't talk about it. Christians historically have said that's a topic for people's private homes. That's not something we get into in groups. We're not about to discuss this in the house of God. We're not about to get subject out there because it's awkward, it's embarrassing, it's all of those kinds of things. We all have different standards about what we're willing to talk about and listen to, and so the better thing to do is just not talk about it. So here we are as the body of Christ holding in our hands actual teaching on the subject from God himself, and we don't talk, and we leave it up to somebody else to do it. And so on behalf 
of pastors and Christian leaders everywhere, I own that. I apologize. I think it's one thing for the church to stand back and define all the bad things about our culture and sex and stand on our, our ivory towers and whack our fingers at the people who we think aren't getting it right, but we're not doing a doggone thing to help. We're supposed to be the light of the world. We're supposed to be the salt of the earth. We're supposed to be here to help people. We're supposed to be here to serve people, and yet we would rather be comfortable so we don't talk about it. And when I say we, I, this is not you guys. This is me. This is me and my colleagues. We have done a terrible job with this because somewhere, sometimes somebody convinced church leaders that the subject of sex is too taboo, that people are not mature enough to handle it, that if you even bring up the subject, it's just going to cause people to go off and lust and sin sexually and do all that kind of stuff. So let's just not talk about it. Here's the deal. For the next three weeks or so, we're going to talk about it. Some of you may decide not to come back for the next couple of weeks. Some of you will be upset with me because of how frankly I'm dealing with this. But you know, the truth of the matter is most Christians, we just roll our eyes, point our fingers and judge people who are getting it wrong instead of actually dealing with it. And here's the other thing. Among those people that are getting it wrong is us. See, a whole bunch of Christians are really messed up in this area as well. And we're shrugging our shoulders. We don't know what to say. And that's why we're not saying anything. So I'm just going to tell you now, I'm sorry if this topic makes you uncomfortable. I get it. I'm uncomfortable too. And, and I'm really like, I really feel bad. I don't want you to freak out if you're here visiting for the first time today. <laughs> and you're like, okay, this is one of them weird cults, right? This, I don't think that. You just keep coming back for a little while. Give us a chance. But, but uh, if you're interested in this subject, although nobody's hardly interested in this subject, if you're interested in this subject, you maybe come at the right time. I am going to talk about sex from this pulpit for the next couple of weeks because I am fed up with the devil getting all the victory in this area of our lives. That's why. And I think it's time for us to start getting it right when it comes to our sexuality. So take a deep breath. We're going to jump in and get a theology of sex. And we're going to go to Genesis chapter 1. So take your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 1. Now, if you were here for the beginning of this series several weeks back, you'll remember we started right here in these verses in Genesis chapter 1, laying a foundation for what we're going to get to. And I told you in a few weeks, we're going to come back and look at these verses again. Well, that's, it's time to do that. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 we're going to pick it up right at the end of the creation narrative that's offered in chapter 1. The creation narrative is given to us in chapter 1 in sort of broad terms, and the specifics are given to us in chapter 2, so we get the creation narrative twice. But in chapter 1, here's what we get in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle um, and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on all the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Let's just stop there. We're going to be presenting three really big points today, and then we're going to kind of look at them and see if we can understand how this affects our sex lives. Number one, and we already covered this, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Number one, from these verses, we were 
designed. We were created. We were made. We didn't just happen. It's not a matter of happenstance that you exist. It's not a matter of happenstance that you are the way that you are. But you were created and designed. That's number one. Number two, you were created in the image of God. This is what theologians call the imago Dei. It's Latin for image of God. It means that we bear God's image as human beings. And as human beings, that sets us apart from everything else in creation. We are not like rocks and trees and seals and rabbits and dogs and porpoises. We are different. And the main way that we are different is that we bear the image of God, which means, at least in part, that we were created to live in a spiritual relationship with the God who created us. We have a soul. We have a spirit that makes us human. And being human is special among all the things that God created. And the third thing is that God created us male and female, which means we're created as sexual beings. Now, we're going to talk about this just a little bit today. I wish I had more time to get into it, but I don't. Uh, but here's the thing. There's a lot of controversy right now about what does it mean to be male and what does it mean to be female? And our, our culture is sort of taking on this topic and, the, and saying, you know, well, is your physical body what determines your maleness or your femaleness? Is there really such a thing as gender? Or is it possible for us to just get into a big gray area where nobody is anything different than anybody else? And is it possible that if you feel female, but your body is male or vice versa, which is supposed to define you? Is it the way that you feel or is it the way that you look and the way that your DNA is? What defines being male and female? Now, we're going to get into this just a little bit, but for, t for right now, let me just say this. Uh, whatever it means to be male and female, it ain't the same thing. Okay? Now, I... I I feel like we all go, well, duh, that should be obvious. And yet in our culture today, that question is coming up. God made us, according to Genesis 1, specifically either male or female. And to be female means something. And it means something different than being male. To be male means something. And it means something different than being female. And so your sexuality is not just about what you do behind closed doors. Your sexuality is an integral part of who you are. There's a lot of talk today among philosophers. I know most of you spend most of your time reading philosophy, but you're supposed to laugh. Uh, but, but there's a lot of talk today among philosophers about this idea that the body and the person are two separate things. The person is who you are, and the body is just this tool that you use. And therefore, what you do with your body has no impact on your personhood. That's the general thinking today. Scripture says differently. It says that when he created you, when he designed you, he specifically made your body biologically, physiologically, anatomically, either male or female. And that is going to play a big part in what we understand to be an accurate biblical theology of sex. Now, the gender fluidity issue, here's what I will say about it. However, our culture determines to 
discuss this issue, define this issue, pass laws and rules, merge bathrooms, change terminology and titles and all that kind of stuff. Uh, there is truth in Scripture. And the truth of Scripture is never meant to be a weapon, but is meant to be a blessing. So as we address this issue, whether we're talking about people who are talking about gender fluidity, I'm in a male body, but I'm really a female, that sort of thing, or whether we're talking about different uh, uh, sexual approaches, any of those letters that go in LGBTQ and all of that kind of stuff, whatever we're talking about with that, here's what I can tell you. Love is supposed to rule the day. We as Christians have got to hold truth because it's given to us from God for our good and for the good of others. While holding truth, we have to be compassionate and gracious and loving and kind to people who are struggling with a struggle that you may not be able to relate to, but has to be horrific if you're struggling with it. So let's at least win the battle of love. And there's a lot to be said about the truth on this, and you know me, I'm not going to back away from the teaching of Scripture, but you guys, the church has got to get better at loving people who are struggling and who are outside of the teaching of what God's Word says. And, and until we do, why in the world would they ever pay attention to what we have to say? So when we get into this issue of gender fluidity, the scripture says you're either male or female. We could go through hundreds of passages and paint this picture and make it evident and clear from God's word. But you know what else is clear from God's word? When a person is struggling, when a person is hurting, what they need is to be loved, cared for, and helped, not beaten over the head and judged. So we'll get into that more in the next couple of weeks. But this is why it's important to remember the basic principles of creation and design. A good God created you. He designed you and he made you male or female. And when he gives instructions and when he places parameters or boundaries in our lives and our sexuality, those parameters and boundaries and instructions are not meant to hold us back from success. They are meant to set us free to succeed. Amen? Do we understand that? We have to stop fighting against the God who loves us and saying, well, you're trying to impose your, your uh, own ethic on me as if somehow you, God, know what's right. He does know what's right. And he loves us. So we need to pay attention. But according to Genesis, human gender and sexuality are a big part of God's intentional loving design for every human being. And God has given sex to people as an unbelievably good gift. So let's keep going in our, in our theology of sex here, and let's go to chapter 2 of Genesis, and let's look at verses 18 and following. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And in the next couple of verses, he brings all the animals by. None of those are suitable for Adam. In verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, yeah. No, it doesn't say that, does it? It's, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There you have it. God designed us to be sexual beings. He created the woman and the man to be compatible to one another, not just in terms of their emotional connection, not just in terms of their social connection, but in terms of their physical and literally sexual connection. You do not need an anatomy class from me. You don't need me to put pictures up on the screen of stick figures to know that God created men and women to fit together sexually. It's part of his design. And it's a gift that he's given to us. He told husbands and wives to be joined to one another. Or the the word I like better is the old King James word where it says to cleave to one another. And that's a word that's kind of hard to describe the Hebrew word where we get be joined or cleave. But so let me just give you a, a word picture. If I took two blocks of wood and slathered them with super glue and stuck them together and then put them in a vise for an hour, they would cleave to one another. And if you tried to tear them apart, you would not be able to do it without damaging both of them. Does that make sense? That's what it means to cleave. So it says that a man is to leave his father and mother. He creates a new family with this woman that he marries. And once married, they are to cleave to one another. And in case we don't understand what he means by cleaving, he says, and the two shall become one flesh. And later in the New Testament, when it talks about this, it says and the two shall become one. And it's not just that your flesh is joined. It's that your hearts, your mind, your soul, you're joined. And without giving up your individuality, the two become one. It's a mystery. It's amazing. It's not like anything else we've seen, but it's what God does. And it's not just an analogy. It's literal. We are to literally be joined together sexually. And in that joining, we are to be joined together emotionally, spiritually, and in all of these other ways. And by the way, did you notice that even though they were naked, they were not what? ashamed. We don't know anything about this. We know nothing about nakedness without shame. There is no such thing in our culture anyway as nakedness without shame. It involves embarrassment. It involves hiding. It involves uncomfortable, awkward feelings. None of us is comfortable with it. And yet in the garden, there was no awkwardness, no strangeness about it. Nothing to make them uncomfortable. And so that's a lot different than the stereotypes that a lot of religious people have about sexuality today. God is pro-sex. The Bible is pro-sex. It's full of all kinds of pro-sex teaching. We're going to look at some of those passages next week. That's what they call in the radio business a teaser. You come back next week, we're going to be looking at some of these R-rated passages in the Bible and looking at what it is that God is trying to say to us about our own sex lives. But the Bible is full of all kinds of pro-sex teaching. But I will bet that if you grew up in the church, if you heard anything at all about sex, which you probably didn't, it would have been when you were a teenager and it would have been in your youth group. And what you heard was simply this, don't do it, right? 
Is that not what the church has taught? We get our teenagers together because we're, we're certainly not going to talk to children about this. And there's no point talking to old people about this. So we get teenagers. We put them together and we go, all right, here's the deal. I know you guys have heard about this sex thing. Here's what the Bible says. Don't do it. So we make packs and we let them wear bracelets and they hold signs and they do all of this. I'm not going to do it. I'm a good Christian kid. And that's what we do. That's what you have heard. You've heard true love waits. You've heard, you know, virginity, second virginity, third virginity. It's like first, second, and third <laughs> Corinthians or something like that. You've, you've heard all that stuff. If you were in the church youth group, what you heard is don't do it. That's all you've heard. But when I read the Bible on the topic of sex, do you know what I hear? Do it. Do it a lot. Enjoy it. Have a great time with it. Make it a regular part of your life. Enjoy it and celebrate it. Just don't remove it from the design that God gave it. God wants us to enjoy sex. And I was trying to think of how I could explain this and, and make this clear. And I, and I was looking at a glass of Mountain Dew. I know, I'm really weird. I'm looking at a glass of Mountain Dew, and you know what I thought? It looks like antifreeze. Mountain Dew looks like antifreeze. That is a mistake you don't want to make, right? <laughs> you don't want to mix up your Mountain Dew and your antifreeze. I, I'm not sure which one is worse for you physically, but... <laughs> But I'm pretty sure you don't want to drink antifreeze. Now, does that mean antifreeze is bad? No. Antifreeze is fantastic. It keeps your car blocked from freezing. It keeps it from overheating. It makes your car work. If you think antifreeze is bad, just take it out of your car and see how you do, right? There's nothing wrong with antifreeze. It's wonderful. It's just not made to be consumed by a human being, right? When we take a good thing with a good design, we move it out of its intended design, and we try to use it for something it was not designed for, we often end up with major problems. So let's think about purpose when it comes to sex. What is the purpose of sex? Why in the world would God create us as sexual creatures and tell us to go have lots of sex? Which is what he does in the Bible. One of the purposes is obvious. You don't need me to talk much about this. Procreation, right? Procreation is an obvious reason. This is how we make little human beings, okay? So that's easy. But, but even that, there's a lot of ways to procreate. So many species procreate, right? Flowers procreate. A bee lands on this one, then it flies over and lands on this one, and we get more flowers, right? Aren't you glad God didn't create us to procreate that way? right? Seriously. I mean, I don't know. I, and let, me, let me just be very serious. A lot of us are carrying a lot of baggage when it comes to this topic. I know this. A lot of us have a lot of hurt when it comes to the topic of sex. Some of it's because of something that was done to us. Some of it is because of choices that we have made. Some of it is because we have uh, ignored this area while it was, while it was um, crumbling in our marriages, and now it's just one of those topics we never even deal with. A lot of us have hurt and baggage when it comes to this, and I will never make light of that, and I don't want to joke around about that. I want to be really clear. We are carrying some baggage, but that being said, 
regardless of how you or I may have messed it up in our own lives or somebody may have messed it up in our lives, regardless of that, God created it to be incredibly wonderful. He gave it as a gift. And so when we think about procreation, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to procreate, and he did it this way. He created every nerve ending. He created parts of our bodies and little, little parts of parts of our bodies that make our bodies work sexually in a way that is just simply so we'll like it. He blesses us with that. That brings me to the second purpose of sex, which is pleasure. I know that you don't expect anybody in church to tell you that sex is supposed to be pleasurable, but it's supposed to be awesome. He created us as sexual beings for pleasure. God's design of the human body and the human psyche bears that out. You don't need me to explain to you all the details. But neither one of those, procreation and pleasure, is the main purpose for which sex was created. It's given to us right here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Main purpose... For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The main purpose for sex is oneness. He created us for unity, a husband and a wife. He created us to find our, our um, completion in that spouse. Now, let me be clear. The scripture is clear. Not every human being is supposed to get married. You can be a completely complete person without having a spouse. You are not incomplete without that spouse. But when it is God's will for your life to be married, as it is in most cases, if it is God's will for your life to be married, you will find a completion in a spouse that you will not find in any other kind of a way. God created us for that. And so he, he designed this to be a unifying thing in our lives because it's important to a marriage that two become one. It's important to a family, that two become one. It is important to a community, that marriages and families are strong. It is important to all of society. He designed society this way, and this is an important building block. He created us for oneness. The Bible calls it a mystery, but it's literally true. The math looks something like this. One plus one equals one. And, and we don't do math that way. And so it confuses us. and We don't know what to do with it. But it's a gift God's trying to give us. And what we end up doing is removing it from its context that he designed it for. And then we get frustrated because it doesn't deliver on the things that we hoped it would deliver on. We won't take the time to look this up because I, I went way too long in the first service. But Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9. You can look this up later on in your homework. Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9, Jesus talks about this, and he quotes the passages that we're looking at today, and he says, the two shall become one, and when God brings them together, do not separate them for any reason. There is a bonding effect that he created marriage, and specifically sex within marriage, to bring. And by the way, that's why, at least one of the reasons why, Sex outside of marriage is ultimately so unfulfilling. And, and if you have any experience with sex outside of marriage, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but if you have any experience with sex outside of marriage, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Let me be clear. Of those three purposes, procreation, pleasure, and, and oneness, you can procreate when you're not married, right? There's a lot of people that have those oops experiences. 
There's uh, also pleasure when you have sex outside of marriage. I wish I could stand up here and say, listen, sex outside of marriage is miserable. You'll hate it. Don't do it. It's awful. But anybody who's had sex outside of marriage knows that what feels good feels good. And still, there is a lack of fulfillment. Still, there is something wrong. When, when we do this outside of marriage, what it does is it takes what God meant to create a lasting permanent bond and we put up walls against that permanent bond and we say, we're just going to make this a physical thing. My person is not going to do this. Just my body is going to do this. You don't get my heart. You don't get my soul. You don't get my love. You don't get my commitment. What you get is my body for a few minutes. And then we shrug our shoulders and go, well, it felt good for a minute, but I'm still unfulfilled. It's because we're drinking antifreeze. We've taken it out of its intended design, and we can't explain why it doesn't meet our needs. And the consequences are tragic. Sex is meant as a gift from God. It's not dirty. It's not sordid. It's not cheap. It's not shameful. It was given to us as a delight. It's part of what it means to be human. Now, I know some of you are watching the clock going, I think it's about time for him to be done. It is, so let me wrap with this. If we're to be successful humans, we have to address our sexuality. Now, you, you may be going, well, not me, I'm single. Oh, really? Single people are not sexual? Well, not me, I'm old. Oh, really? Old people have, their sexuality is not a part of being old? Guys, oh, not me, I'm married. Really? Sex is not a part of marriage? Uh, you know, not me, I, I, I'm a male. Not me, I'm a female. Listen, guys, God made you, designed you, and you are a sexual being. And what's really strange is that as life goes on, what it feels like to be a sexual being changes. Your context changes, whether you're married or not married, whether you're, you're physically uh, handicapped or not handicapped and all of that kind of stuff. But you never stop being a sexual being. If we are to be human beings who are successful in living the life that God designed us to live, we can't continue to keep sexuality in a in a closet somewhere where nobody ever talks about it. We have to deal with it. So starting next week, that's what we're going to do. We're going to dig in. We've got this foundational theology now for sex. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about some of the hot topic issues in our culture today. What do we deal? Well, how do we deal with sexual temptation and all the things that are going on out there? And how do we deal with people who see it, don't see it the way that we see it and they're caught up in other things? And how are we supposed to deal with those people? We're going to get into all of that next week. What does the Bible really say about the, the wonder of sex within marriage. We're going to get into that next week. And then in the following week, we're going to dig in and we're going to start talking about answering questions. If you manage to get through today without blushing, you're not getting through week three without blushing. <laughs> we're, we're going to actually deal with real questions and we're going to talk about how does a, how does a Christian who is a sexual being live in a, in a biblically informed way in their sexuality. So that's where we're going with this. Um, pray for me. Pray with me. I want to be as helpful as I possibly can. Last thing before we close, I've been telling you we have this uh, anonymous 
online place to ask questions. You can ask questions about money, sex, or politics during this series. They're anonymous. The thing is, I can't answer your question directly because I don't know who you are and I can't email you back. So if you need to be emailed back or you want a counseling appointment or something like that, give me your name and information. But other than that, you can keep sending in those things. And at the end of this, uh, at the end of this series, we're going to be dealing with some of the most po uh, common questions and we're going to do some Q&A kind of stuff. So that's where we're going with all this. God has died, sent his son to die to redeem not just your spirit and soul, but your body and your sexuality as well. And we can look forward to that.